Anybody else flash back a little bit there? Anybody want to rock on a little longer to that one? We're in the middle of a series called This Is Real Love, and uh, last week uh, we used the song, I Want to Know What Love Is, to remember the, the points that God was speaking to our hearts. This morning we used this just to kind of get us to the sermon. Some of you in here give love a bad name. And I'm not just pointing at you, I'm pointing at myself too. We've all done it, right? Think back to some of the notes that you sent to the girl that you liked or the, to the boy that you liked, some of the games that you played and some of the things that you did that just didn't quite give love the best name. The, the thing is, is um, in our culture, I think um, Christians especially have, we've lost the moral high ground. We've lost the understanding of love. And so we just celebrated Valentine's Day. How many of you are glad that Valentine's Day is over? Don't raise your hand. No, I'm glad that it's over. Not because I don't love my wife and not because we don't celebrate Valentine's Day but, but, and celebrate the, the romantic love that we have, but, but I'm glad it's over because of what we've made it. And if you've been here long enough, you know I feel about most holidays that way. Because we have a really great ability as, as people, but also even as believers, to take something that's wonderful and lovely, including romantic love, and we, we tend to twist it, and we make it about ourselves, or, or we idolize it, and we make it about something that it's not. I mean, like, who said that, that the, the, the height of love is a, is a card and chocolates and some flowers? Not that there's anything wrong with chocolates and flowers and a card, right? Those things are good to produce romantic love in our hearts and our lives, to express that to each other, but when we just make it about this, it's kind of ridiculous. Or sometimes we just idolize romantic love, right? We turn it into an idol in our lives. Anytime that we idolize something, the tendency of the human heart is to take that which is good and idolize it. It's one of the reasons why, if you, if you read the, through the Ten Commandments, this isn't my notes, but if you read through the Ten Commandments, one of the commandments is not to make any graven images, not to make any images of God. Why was God so, con- or other gods, why was God so concerned with that? Probably because as human beings, we like to take our experience, take our vision of what God has done, or take our our experience with something really good that God has done in our lives, and we like to idolize it. We make a memorial out of it, and that's why if you read through scriptures, if God asks for a memorial, he asks for it to be built out of uncut stones, right? Just pile some stones up so you'll remember. So we're going to talk today about romantic love because in some ways we idolize it, in some, some ways we as a church have missed God's ideas on romantic love. We reduce it to what I feel, or we make it just overly sexual. Last week we learned that there is a real love, right? There's a real love. God gives us a real love. And then there's other things that masquerade as love. And so I want to talk about this real love this morning. Because there's a real love from God. And it's a love that we can share with one another. And yes, there's a brotherly love, there's agape love, but what about romantic love? Is God down with that? Sometimes Christians... The way we deal with romantic love, 
the way we talk about it, or really the way we don't talk about it, makes us think that we don't even know where babies came from. No, seriously, sometimes we live in so much shame around what God has given us in terms of romantic love. We, we either live in one side or the other. We're all the way in and we serve it and we idolize it, or we just kind of ignore that it's there. And I want to talk about what God thinks about romantic love. How many of you want to know what he thinks about it this morning, about marriage? If you want to, if you want to question whether or not God's down with romantic love, just read Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon is, is literally one of the hottest pieces of romantic literature ever written. And I'm not saying like secular or religious. I'm talking about like just overall, it is one of the hottest pieces of romantic literature. In fact, it was so hot, it is so hot, I should say, that uh, Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator on Scripture, recorded that Jewish doctors recommended that Jewish young people didn't read the Song of Solomon until they were 30 years old. It's too hot to read. Now, some people interpret the Song of Solomon simply as a relationship between God and his people. And there are themes and elements of that. God is the lover of our souls. But that that book was written about actual romantic love between two human beings. And if you're able to read poetry and understand what's being said, there's some pretty naughty bits in that book. But it's scripture. And it gives us a framework of what God thinks about that. It's in the Bible. And so if Christians have lost the high ground on love, including, including romantic love, we give love a bad name. So what does God think about it? Today we're going to talk about this from God's perspective. But before we do, I think it's important to address something. Some people would say, okay, pastor, you're going to teach about romantic love. Isn't that something that should be reserved for a marriage retreat? For couples that are already married or couples that are engaged? Or maybe you're here this morning, you're thinking, this, this sermon certainly cannot be for me. I'm single or I'm divorced or I'm widowed or like this, this really is not a sermon that I'm down for. Should I just leave now, go get some breakfast, and we'll pick this up next week? I want to talk about some, some groups that this is good for. I think it's important to answer this question for the room this morning. Here, here are some people that I think this kind of talk is good for. The first is this, for teenagers and children who are age-appropriate. What do I mean by that? Well, first let's say teenagers, like, yes, all the way, but age-appropriate. Listen, if, you're, if you have not had the talk, you know what talk I'm talking about? If you haven't had the talk with your children by the time they're 12 years old, I guarantee you someone else has had that talk with them. And probably not accurate, and probably not in a healthy way. You need to have that talk. And if you are unwilling to have that talk with your kids, you can bring them to my office, you can sit down with me, and I will do all the embarrassing talking. Ask my kids. No, don't ask my kids because it would embarrass them. But you can ask my kids if you were allowed to ask my kids. And they would tell you, I'm willing to talk about anything way more than they're willing to talk about it. Because it's important. Why? Because this is how we give them a framework for life. 
If you haven't given them a framework, they will get a framework, and they'll get it from somewhere else. They'll get it from television. They'll get it from their friends. And chances are that framework is not healthy. What do I mean by framework? Think of it this way. God gives us a framework of how to think about human sexuality and romantic love so that everything that we experience in our culture can get poured through that, that sieve, through that filter. And what comes out on the other side is, yes, this is good. This is godly. This is appropriate. This is healthy. This moves me towards my relationship with the Lord. Or we can say, hey, this really isn't God's goodness and God's plan. Other people talk about it, but we're not going to do this. This is not part of what God has in store for us. Everybody needs to have that framework. So when we talk about it for teenagers and for children, we are giving them a framework. Why? Because this is God's framework for society. God decided that, that, that society would be built on a family and on married couples. And in our, in our culture, we mess that up all the time. If you are wondering whether or not your kids are getting a message about it, you can take them to the Erie County Public Library for the drag queen family time. I'm not kidding. Literally, drag queen family time. It's billed as this, a time of diversity, self-acceptance, tolerance in a fun family atmosphere where a drag queen will read stories to your children to normalize the idea of sexuality expressed in that way and so we live in a culture where we need to give children a healthy framework and we don't do that by just modeling we do that by talking about God's design for love and relationship and marriage we owe them a, a godly framework at an early age we all need a framework. See, there's a difference between naive and uninformed and innocent and wise. What do I mean by that? Many of us as Christians approach this subject with our children with if we just keep them from the stuff, they will be okay. But the problem is the minute that they are released from our homes, let's say you do a perfect job and they are 18 years old and they never get touched by any idea about sexuality other than yours. What in the world is going to happen to them when you release them from your home? They're going to get it from everywhere, every which way. And that's why kids have a hard time when they graduate from our homes, walking into society, not just around sexuality and marriage, but around everything else. They don't have a framework to understand. They've been told, just stay away from that, or just because I said so, or because the Bible says so. I've had people in my office talking about this topic, and I said, do you understand why God would want you to wait till marriage to, to, to have intercourse with each other? And the best answer they could give was just because the Bible said so. And if that's our answer for anything, and we haven't thought through and we don't have a framework, then we are ill-equipped not only to live God's goodness for the world to see, but also for us to demonstrate it to other people and to live it for ourselves. So it's important that we give this, this talk, these ideas to our teenagers and age-appropriate children. Also for single adults. Statistics tell us that most people are waiting to get married these days. 27, sorry, I think it's 28 and 29 is the average age for uh, women and men to get married. We're putting off marriage. But the truth is this, most singles are not putting off cohabitating and sleeping together. That's just the truth. And so we need to give singles something to look forward to. A framework for understanding of how their lives, when they do get married, because 9 out of 10 will get married, we need to give them a framework for, hey, this is what life looks like. 
Now listen, as a single adult, you might be saying, hey, wh- why are you going to tell me about married- marriage? You're going to get me all worked up, jacked up. I'm going to start thinking about it. And, tr- and the truth is this. Sometimes we idolize marriage. We say, hey, God's going to give you this marriage, and it becomes an idol that we don't even experience. And so it's something far off that maybe we'll get to someday. But here's what I'm saying. If you're single and you're here this morning and you want to be married someday, this is not something that you can just think about from far off. This is something you can be working on right now. God is giving you this time of your life to prepare yourself for marriage, to prepare yourself for His plan for society. You can prepare your heart for love and romance and marriage by preparing your heart for purity. Gentlemen, this is the time to kick your porn habit. Because otherwise you will bring that into your marriage and it will bring destruction in your marriage. This is the time right now that God is giving you in your singleness to work through the emotional immaturity issues that you have. So that when you come into your marriage, you're not dumping those things on your partner or you're not expecting your your husband or your wife to be everything that you want them to be or everything that you expect God to be in your life and you, you start to demand things from them that God never designed them to give you and when they fail you because human beings fail you, then you get disappointed and you end up moving out of relationship with each other. God wants to teach you now in your singleness how to love Him, how to pursue Him, how to go after Him with everything that you got. You might be here this morning saying, well, I'm single and I tried marriage and now I'm divorced and, that, and, and so why are you talking to me? This is a great time for, for people who have been divorced, who have tried marriage and it's been something other than what God wanted and intended for you to say, okay, that, that is something that God wants to speak to me about now so that my heart is, is healthy towards marriage. Because sometimes when we go through divorce, and there's all different reasons for that, it becomes such an emotional uh, uh, bondage around our necks that we don't think about or talk about marriage in a healthy way. We can't talk about our exes or even uh, people of the opposite sex, like all, all men are dogs and, and all women are manipulators. And we start to have our hearts warped by the, our experience that wasn't God's best and we need to hear about God's plan and purpose and God's best so our hearts can be fashioned according to His. Or maybe this morning you're here and you're, you're dating or engaged. This is a time for you to talk about this so you can build a common framework for your unique family. How many know every, every family in here is unique? You probably had some things growing up that your family did that when you got around your other friends, you're like, wait, you don't do that too? I remember one time we had a, a, a family over to eat tacos. I mean, we had them over for fellowship, but we were eating tacos. <laughs> and I remember there were two things about the way they ate tacos that just bothered the heck out of me. They put ketchup on their tacos. There are, listen, don't be judgy. Let me be judgy. You don't be judgy with me. Just let me be judgy. And, and also how they folded their tacos. They, they, they took them and they, they made like a, like a square out of them. Like a, a, a soft shell, you know. And then ate them like a hamburger. Probably were confused by the ketchup. I don't know. 
But you understand, each family that God has designed to put together is unique. And if God is bringing two people together, you're, you're, you're engaged, you're moving towards marriage, this is the time to get a framework for what God wants so that you can take everything that you've experienced and everything that you've experienced. Because how many of you know the first three years of marriage is fighting about, well, my family did it this way and my family did it this way. And you're like, well, whose family is better? How about you just say, what does God want for our family? And this is a time to be able to do that in a healthy way. Because here's the thing, people come to my office all the time for premarital counseling, and I love premarital counseling, and if you come to me for premarital counseling, I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about everybody else right now, okay? But you, they come to my office for premarital counseling, and everybody who comes, this is why I love premarital counseling, everybody's in love, right? This is like the one time in your life that you get to come in as a pastor, and people are actually happy, usually. Right? They're excited to come to your office because it's not like getting called into the principal's office. How many of you, by the way, ever get a call like, hey, Pastor Josh wants to have a meeting with you, and you're like, oh, shoot, I'm in trouble. <laughs> Listen, I'm a nice guy. I know I'm scary, and like, I have a beard, and, but like, when I call you to my office, I just want to see the grace of God come into your life. And so please don't feel like it's a principal's office. That's just an aside. But I have these couples that come in, and they're in love, and oh, you know, why do you want to get married? Because we just love each other so much and, and we just, we've discovered that we have the same values. We value the same things. I'm like, great, I'm sure you do have the same values because most people do. And what are the things we value? We value God, we value family, we value hard work, we value money, we value time with uh, doing adventurous things, we value, I don't know, what do you value? And, oh, we've both found out we value, um, I'm trying not to step on toes here, we value collecting uh, uh, fingernail clippers. I don't know. <laughs> Beautiful. I love that you value the same things. But without fail, every couple that comes into my office, although they may have the same values, they do not share the same value systems. And what I mean by that is this. At what point do you rank those things? Because that's where conflict comes into relationship. You might share the same values, but where you rank those things are different. In other words, like, a husband may value work over family time. Now, no husband's going to say that because we're all smart enough to know we're not supposed to value work over family time. But in reality, and in the depths of our hearts and in our practice, we value work sometimes over family time. But if your wife values family time over work, there's going to come a clash of those value systems. And what happens when value systems cl clash? What do we call that in the world? When, two, when one value system in one nation clashes with another value system in another nation, what results? War. And so this is a time where we can talk about, okay, let's put aside my value system and your value system. Let's fight, figure out God's value system. What does God think about marriage? What are the highlights about what he thinks about it so that we can put ourselves on the same place and on the same path? We can talk about it now. And listen, here's this. It's also good for married couples. Well, no kidding, Pastor Josh. It's important to talk about this for married couples because for those who are in a marriage that's maybe a little dry, a little stale, this is an opportunity to reignite some of that passion. For those of us that are in marriages uh, where they've been broken, and listen, don't pretend like everybody's got it together here this morning. Statistics tell us that there are people in this congregation who are in this, in this room right now who are on the edge in their marriage relationships. And it's not working. And one or more of them are thinking about, I don't know how I can keep on doing this. And if you're here this morning and you're in a broken marriage, 
talking about it this morning isn't bringing to light something to bring you shame or to tell you, yes, you got to get out. It's literally this morning to give you hope. That if we talk about what God thinks about it, then that means prophetically we can enter into that. We can have hope that God will renew and restore that which is broken. Or if we're here this morning and maybe you think, my marriage is the best marriage in this place. Ain't nobody got a love like I got. Well, first of all, this is an opportunity to measure your marriage against God's standards and probably, hopefully, gain some humility. But also, it's an opportunity to say, let's enrich our marriage. Because how many of you know, ain't nobody got a perfect marriage? If you got a perfect marriage, come and talk to me. We'll write down your ideas. You can do all the counseling now. That's what that means, by the way. If yours is perfect, you've got to do the counseling. And so we're going to talk about this morning, and I want to say this as by way of announcement. We're going to have a marriage conference here uh, on June 12th and 13th, Friday and Saturday, June 12th and 13th. And we have opened up early bird registration literally right now. So if you want to go on the website, you want to go on the app, and you want to sign up right now, it's $40 through March, early bird registration. This is the one time Pastor Josh gives you permission to be on your phone, not looking at Scripture while he's preaching. If you want to register for that conference right now, you are welcome to do that. This is also a great talk for widows or widowers. Why would we talk about that? Pastor, I'm already done. I finished my race. Listen, here's the truth. Widows and widowers, we need you. We need you. Whether you, you might say, well, well, like, I'm a widow and, like, our marriage wasn't so great. Great, we need you right now to tell us what we should do to have healthy marriages and relationships. We need you to hear this. We need to be on the same thing. Maybe you say, hey, I'm a widower. Like, I'm, I'm not getting married again. Great, we need you to spend time praying for us, for the marriages that God has given us, and investing in the lives of those around us. See, in, in Scripture, it's very clear about this. That's the job of widows and widowers, to pray, to spend their time where they're not having to engage in these relationships. How many know marriages work? Listen, if you ain't working at it and you don't agree that it's work, you probably don't have a really good one. You're running from it. So we need widows right now to pray into and to influence. Because here's the truth. This is good for all of us because we're leaders. Every single one of us is a sent one into the earth to demonstrate the goodness of God. We're all, we live in a society where everybody wants to be an influencer. Right? Influencers are the new hot thing. Do you know that? Everybody wants to be an Instagram model. Listen. Not everybody's cut out to be a model. My only hope is to be a beard model. That's my only hope. (laughs) Everybody wants to be an influencer. Here's the truth. We are all influencers. How we live marriage influences the society around us. How we live marriage influences our children. It influences generations. Listen, understand this though. If we're going to influence people, this is not about us telling everybody how to live their lives. Let's settle this right now. 
This is about the recognition that the Holy Spirit is actively involved in growing us more and more into His image. And as we grow more and more into His image, we become more and more influential to the world around us. Not because we're preaching at people. Not because we're yelling at people. Listen, the gospel takes words. I understand that. But God is also looking for people who will live the way He's called them to live to demonstrate to a world that's broken. This is what my goodness looks like. And transparency and authenticity. This is about us living an example to the world around us of those who embrace the wisdom and pleasure of living according to God's purposes. So what does God think about romance and love and marriage? First, you've got to understand this. This is a thing that can divide us or bring condemnation. There's an opportunity here for, for you this morning. If you live in a broken relationship or you've tried this or maybe you come from a broken home to hear condemnation coming from this pulpit. And I want you to know there is no condemnation in Christ. If you're here this morning and there is something stirring in your heart and you feel something, that is not the Lord bringing it up to bring you shame. That is the Lord bringing it up because he wants to address something in your heart and your life. Because he wants to bless you. Because he wants to deal with it. Jake was talking about that this morning. The things he brings us into the light sometimes are uncomfortable, right? But why does he do that? It's not to shame us or to expose us. It's to expose that idea, that thinking, that way of life, so he can bring his goodness into it. So it comes into conflict with his word so that he can allow us to walk in his word. Please know this. This is not a sermon to see if you or your family measure up. This is a sermon where we're going to measure our thoughts and our behaviors against the thoughts and expectations of God. And we will not tolerate condemnation in this place. But we will expect conviction. I expect that each person in this place has their hearts turned towards the Lord in a unique way. Why? Because God is redemptive. So be encouraged if you're convicted. God is showing you new possibilities in Him. Be, be glad if you feel like you don't measure up because God is showing you what's available to you that you haven't accessed before. You and I are unable to do anything about the past, but we can acknowledge where our past has been broken, where it hasn't lived up to God's standards. And in that, we invite the Holy Spirit to come and show us the, the next right thing to do. Some of us, because this thing is complicated, relationships are complicated, some of us are finding ourselves, even this morning, in relationships that are wrong or unhealthy or need to move. What do we do about that? We don't say, oh, well, I guess I don't measure up. I'm just going to keep doing what I want to do. This is our opportunity to say, God, what do you want? What is the next right thing to do? How do I walk into your will and into your goodness? Belief turns to faith when we act on his word. In fact, when we hear something about God's standards and we don't act on it, or we hear something about God's word and we start to judge other people about it, we put ourselves in a situation or into the category of follower that nobody wants to be in. What do I mean by that? We, we make ourselves into Pharisees. Do you know that the Pharisees followed Jesus? Jesus invited the disciples to come follow him, and they followed him. The Pharisees followed Jesus because they were always trying to trip him up. They wanted to see what this thing was all about. And sometimes we find ourselves in the same place. We hear what God's saying, we don't do anything about it, or we hear what God's saying, and we judge people. Let me explain it to you this way. Finally, let's jump into the Word of God a half an hour in. Let's make this a real Bible meeting. 
Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. This will be our scripture today. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus, it says in verse 1, left Galilee and went down to the region of Judea, east of the Jordan River. doesn't say it here, but in other Gospels it tells us this is the last time he's in Galilee. This is the last time he's in the place where he grew up. He's going to Judea and then eventually to Jerusalem for him to be crucified. So on his way, he stops. And it says large crowds followed him there. That's how we know that the Pharisees followed him because they were part of the large crowd that was following. It says, verse 3, some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Verse 4, haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied. They record that from the beginning God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and his mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Since they're no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Verse 7, then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away, they asked. And Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God originally intended. I tell you this, whoever divorces his wife and marries someone else commits adultery, unless his wife has been unfaithful. Then Jesus' disciples said to him, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. So much faith. Verse 11, not everyone can accept this statement, Jesus said, only those whom God helps. Some are born as eunuchs, some have been made eunuchs by others, and some choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let anyone accept this who can. Father, we're going to come to your word this morning, and we're so grateful that you've spoken to us already by it. And we just invite you in this moment, the next few moments, to just teach our hearts. Not just to give us an understanding in our heads that affects our minds, but to have revelation that hits our hearts and increases our faith, draws us closer to you and helps us understand your great goodness for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now some, we, we could spend probably the next year doing sermons just on this topic alone, we're going to talk in just the next few minutes some big picture stuff that will help us get a framework that's healthy. The first is this. If we're going to talk about marriage, we have to understand marriage is God's idea. Actually, before we get to that, let me say this. Not everybody's down with what Jesus says here, right? Jesus actually acknowledges not everybody can accept what I'm saying. The Pharisees are having a hard time with it. They have an excuse. They want to argue about it. Even his disciples are having a hard time with what Jesus is saying. I just want to say, let your heart be transformed this morning as we look at what he has to say. Because the first idea about marriage is this. Marriage is God's idea. Marriage is God's idea. And it wasn't his idea like he put Adam and Eve in the garden. He's like, well, what am I going to have them do? He said, listen, it's not good for man to be alone. And so he made woman to be with man as a helpmate fit for him. 
Now, that's loaded language, but let me tell you, that loaded language is not like we think of helpmate. When we think of helpmate, we think of a subservient person, a slave or a servant. That's not what God calls woman to man. First of all, he says she's a helpmate fit for him, meaning exactly what he needs. But he's describing somebody who's equal to him, who can stand in front of him and give him everything that he lacks. I was reading or listening to a sermon, and so I don't know if this is the case. I haven't done the research myself. But the person who was preaching said this, that that term helpmate is applied to women three times in scriptures. It's applied 13 times to God for people. God calls himself our helpmate. So the next time you hear a helpmate fit for you and you think that that subserviates a woman or as a woman you think that somebody's trying to put you down, God is actually saying you are perfectly designed to come alongside a man who is lacking. Stand face to face with him. And the two of you move towards God's purposes together with everything that you need. Marriage is God's idea. And how many of you know it was a good idea? And how many of you know it's a good idea that he made male and female? Guys, aren't you so glad that your wife doesn't look like your brother? (laughs) And guys, aren't you, or women, aren't you so glad that your husbands have that manly skill, all that muscle, that rippling muscle and ability to to come into a room and, and be, the, be the, the slayer of spiders? Like, aren't you, aren't you glad that God made you different? It was God's idea to make a man and to make a woman and to bring them together. Marriage is a good thing because it was in God's mind to put people together. So think about that. The next time... You're in the midst of intense fellowship. And I don't mean the good kind. I mean the not so good kind. Remember, it was God's idea. The next time your face is about to explode. Because he did it again. Remember, this was God's idea. The next time you open a closet and an avalanche of shoes comes out and tries to kill you. Remember, this was God's idea. The next time you can't come to an agreement on how to raise your kids. Remember, this was God's idea. The next time you're tempted to go out and get, get satisfied sexually through, through a video or through another relationship. Remember, this was God's idea. The next time you're just bored. He's not the knight in shining armor you thought he was. Remember, this was God's idea. We have to understand from the very beginning, God thought this was a good thing. It's his idea. The second is this. Marriage is covenant. Yeah. 
God makes covenant with us. He's a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. In fact, the Scripture describes us very much in this vein of marriage. We're described as the bride of Christ. How many of you men have a hard time with Jesus is my boyfriend worship songs? Well, too bad. Because we are, we are his bride. And he gives us that language and that understanding for a powerful understanding. He is the lovers of our soul. Scripture says this, the, 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 the marriage is an illustration of Christ and the church. Ephesians chapter 5, 31 says this, as the scriptures say, this is what Jesus quoted in Matthew, quoting Genesis chapter 2, is quoted by Jesus in Matthew, but also Paul quotes it in Ephesians. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. They make covenant with each other. They're united forever. And verse 32 says this, this is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. If we want to enter into a marriage covenant, or we're already in a marriage covenant, and maybe even a good one, we need to know this, or a broken one, whatever it is. If we are in covenant, we need to know this. First of all, if we're going to make that covenant work, we've got to make covenant with God work. That's why we talked about real love last week, being God loved us first so that we can love others. We're not going to make this covenant with one another work if we don't make a covenant with God work. And so if, you, if, you want, if you're here this morning and your marriage is broken, fall in love with Jesus. If you're here this morning and your marriage is ah, all right, fall in love with Jesus. If you're here this morning and your marriage is great and you want to take it to the next level, fall in love with Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're out of marriage, maybe you're waiting for marriage and, and uh, what do you need to do? Fall in love with Jesus. If you're here this morning and, and you're divorced, fall in love with Jesus. If you're here this morning and your husband or wife has passed away, fall in love with Jesus. He's called us to covenant with himself because he loves us so much. But he also calls us into a new relationship. (laughs) Jesus said, this is why a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife. How many of you know it is important to leave the old covenant relationship that you had with your parents that produced you to enter into a new covenant with somebody else? And so if you're going to walk into this new relationship, you've got to leave the old one. So, much, so many of our marriages are broken or frustrating or are having a hard time because we have not left the old relationship. We're still connected to our parents. And I'm not saying we shouldn't honor our parents and we shouldn't have them in our lives. Absolutely, 100%. If you know anything about me, that's super important. I love my parents and I love my in-loves. I love them and I love spending time with them. But, but I am called not to have covenant relationship with them. I'm called to have, in that way, I'm called to have covenant relationship with my wife. Marriage is a covenant. We left those families so that we could become one. Let me just descri- say it this way. When we first got married, we were waiting to move into our apartment that wasn't ready, so we lived with my in-laws for three weeks after our honeymoon. And it was great. I had no responsibilities. But how many of you know that's, that's not a healthy long-term solution for two people becoming one? It's time to move out of those old relationships and come into covenant with one another. And it's a covenant based on choice. And it's a covenant based not just on getting, but on giving to one another. And it's a covenant that's not necessarily about agreeing all the time. What? 
you will fight. God hasn't called us just to agree with each other all the time. He's called us to walk together all the time, even when we don't agree. So next time you fight, remember this was God's idea, and he's called you into covenant. And a fight, no matter how big it gets, is not a reason to walk away from that covenant. And sometimes we don't walk away from the covenant, literally, but we walk away from the covenant in our hearts. God has called us to covenant because he's a covenant-keeping God, and God has called us to relationship and to covenant. That's why it's so important that when we come together in marriage that we don't just make it flippant. Listen, if you're thinking about getting married here and you want me to do premarital counseling, love to do it. I'll give you all kinds of great stuff, some of the best stuff you'll ever get in your life. But here's the deal. If you come to me and you want, you want to have total control over the ceremony, I'm going to say absolutely no. Because what we're doing in this place, or if we're in a park, or wherever we are, is we're making covenant before God, and that ought to be serious and solemn. So if you want to write your own vows and say, hey baby, you're hot, let's make some babies, I'm not going to let you do that. I believe, like, you think she's hot, and you should celebrate that, and we'll talk about that in a minute, and you should make babies, but that's not the time to say it like that. It's a solemn covenant that we make. Why? Because point three, marriage is sacred. Marriage is sacred. What God has joined together, let no man separate. You didn't make this covenant just between yourselves. God joined you together. Because it's his design, because he's a covenant-making God, he says this is a sacred moment. And this is not just a sacred moment when you give those vows to one another, but this is a sacred moment after moment after moment for a lifetime. The way you live your relationship and marriage relationship is sacred before God. Every moment of it is sacred. In fact, it's so sacred that God tells us to save the coming together, the physical part, the romantic part, until the time is right. When you read Song of Solomon, that really hot book that gets you all stirred up, three times in that book, how many know when something's repeated three times in Scripture, it's important? Three times in that book, the, the, we, are, we are instructed to not awaken love until the time is right. Jesus said this, it's so sacred that if you divorce and marry someone else, you commit adultery. That's how sacred it is to him. The marriage bed is sacred. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 says this, Let the marriage bed be held in high honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Listen, I want to say this because it's so important in our culture that doesn't get it right. God created a sexual union to be between a husband and a wife, period, end of story. No exceptions. That's not a judgmental statement. That's a statement of God's best for us. That's his intention for us. Any other use, there is no other use of sexuality that Scripture condones. There's record in Scripture of other uses of sexuality, but God never condones other types of sexuality. Any sexuality outside of the marriage bed is abusing God's gift. And it brings dishonor to the marriage, and it brings dishonor to the marriage bed. Listen, I just want to talk about it briefly so that we get it straight, because there's not enough teaching about this from our pulpits. Here are the types of dishonor or sexuality that God says are not okay. And in case you're wondering, they're Old Testament and New Testament approved. There's an argument among people that what we read 
in the Old Testament doesn't apply to now because we're New Testament Christians. Well, the truth is this. Every one of these forms of sexuality is addressed in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. But here's the problem. In our culture, I want to equip you with something. In our culture, we don't understand how to see what God is doing with the cross. What do I mean by that? When you read the Old Testament, there are some things in the Old Testament that because of the cross are done away with. Like the ceremonial law. God's moral law doesn't change. Ceremonial law does change. And so the cross, we we need to know what remains unchanged by the cross. We need to know what is transformed through the cross. And we need to know what, what, what is changed by the cross. In other words, we don't, how many of you have sacrificed an, an animal for the forgiveness of your sins? We don't have to do that. Why? Because that was changed by the cross. Right? Jesus is the sacrifice once and for all. But how many of you know that God's moral law doesn't change? And so, here are the types of fornication and adultery. The first is this, adu- adultery. This is where one or more parties are married to someone else. And they engage in sexual activity. Do I need to explain that to anybody else? One or more parties. It doesn't matter if they're both married or not. Like, if one or more parties in a relationship are engaging in sexual activity, that's called adultery. God says it brings destruction. Fornication. Some of you are like, well, that adultery thing, I, I'm not married, and they're not married, so we can do whatever we want. It's, we're free in our society. We're not encumbered, and so we can practice this together. That's called fornication. Unmarried people who engage in sexual intercourse with each other. God says it brings destruction into our lives. And it's not his plan. Homosexuality. Where two people of the same sex engage in sexual activity. In Leviticus, a whole list of sexual acts are condemned by God and says, don't do this. And in that list, homosexuality is the only one that's taken out in that, in that list and said, this is an abomination. They're all listed as abominations. Don't do these things. But this one, like literally right in that text, as it's listing them, says, this is an abomination. Prostitution. Proverbs chapter 7, if you want to understand the destruction that prostitution brings into our lives, you can read that. Let me say this, because it's really important to understand. Pornography. Pornography may seem like a more modern expression, but Jesus literally addressed this idea in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, when he says, if we even look lustfully at a woman. Some people say, well, pornography is not that big of a deal. It's just me looking at stuff. What you are doing when you are engaging in pornography is this. You are bringing others into the marriage through your eyes. Secular studies are just catching up with this. There was a, a Danish study that was done, a secular, not Christian, <laughs> study in Daneland, in um, Denmark. <laughs> Thank you. Well, maybe, maybe like that's the old way to say it. I don't know. In Denmark. Thank you, Art. Thank you. And they did this study where they studied the effects of pornography on the brain. And here's what they found out. It affects your prefrontal cortex. You actually get brain damage... This is not a popular statement, but your brain goes backwards. It retards. What's the prefrontal cortex? The prefrontal cortex is the part of your brain that covers decision-making, that covers morality, 
It's the part of the brain that's not developed in young men until they're like 21, 22, 23. So here's how I explain it. I explain it to my, my teenage son this way. You literally don't have the ability to make good decisions all the time. Now, he can, he can make good decisions. He can make them most of the time. But, but the reality is his brain hasn't fully developed. That part of his brain that governs that isn't fully developed yet. And he looked at me like with horror in his eyes. He's like, Dad, what am I supposed to do if I can't do that? And I was like, bam, that's the question. I was like, that's why God gave you parents. You ask me what to do. I'll tell you what to do, and I'll keep you out of trouble until your brain is fully developed. You literally don't have the ability to make a good decision. What does pornography do? It takes us backwards in that part of our brain. It literally causes brain damage. This is a secular study. We lose our sense of morality. We lose our ability to make good decisions. Pornography destroys marriages and destroys covenant. And I'm not preaching this to bring condemnation into your life. I'm preaching this to say God has a way out. If it is not God's goodness, if it's not God's best, he will provide a way out for you to walk in holiness and have your mind washed and renewed. There is redemption and there is hope in Jesus. Marriage is sacred and marriage is oneness. (laughs) The two shall become one. Paul says this is a mystery. I think it's an incredible mystery. How does God take two very, very different people and make them one? How in the world does God do this? He makes us one in function and purpose and in demonstration, but with different functions in the marriage. Paul describes it this way in Ephesians chapter 33. Sorry, chapter 5, verse 33. Ephesians chapter 5, the entire chapter is about relationships between husbands and wives. But in verse 33, we get this summary of what he's saying. And here's what he says. So I say again, each man must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. Same purpose, oneness, different functions. If you want some wisdom on how to make marriage work, here's the first one. Gentlemen, let's speak to you first. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and lay your life down for her. What does that mean? We are called to love our wives unto death. Now, that doesn't mean that we just say what we give them whatever they want. Right? (laughs) Careful how loud you say amen, guys. Just careful. No, seriously, like, we don't give in to every one of their demands. Hey, I'm going to, you know, buy a thousand purses because I want a thousand purses. Well, babe, I'm called to lay down my life for you, so I'll get three extra jobs so I can make sure that you have whatever you want. That's not what he's talking about. Jesus laid down his life in the way that mattered to his bride. And we're called as husbands to lay down our lives in a way that matters, in a way that washes our brides, in a way that provides for our brides, in a way that does whatever it takes to bring them into relationship with God so that they can succeed and have his best. Wives, what does God say to you? God says, respect your husbands. Okay, that sounds great. But if you read earlier in chapter 5 of Ephesians, it says this, wives, submit to your husbands. See, it's easy to say, well, I'll honor him, but it's real hard when it says submit. Why? Because submission is not submission until you disagree. Disagree. 
gets a little funky, doesn't it? This oneness thing is not easy. But if we do what God's called us to within the functions that he's given us, then we will enter into that oneness and we will pursue the same things. The most beautiful relationships are where one partner is laying down his life for for his wife and where the wife is respecting and honoring and submitting to her husband. God intends for two very different, very separate people to understand what their functions are so they can come together for one. And let me just say this, and we're going to end with this this morning. That marriage should include romance. If the worship team can come, because if we're going to talk about romance, we should have some good music. (laughs) Let me say this. Marriage should include romance, but marriage is not romance. And romance is not marriage. What do I mean by that? Healthy marriage relationships have romantic love as a part of them. But if you measure that marriage solely by the romantic love, you will find it wanting. How many of you know marriage is not always romantic love? I know you all just celebrated Valentine's Day, so you're all like lovey-dovey with each other. But how many of you know marriage isn't always romantic love? And if you say that it is, you probably have a God of romantic love in your life. But God does want to bless us with romantic love. Jesus said it this way. When they said, how come Moses said that we could divorce our wives? We could give them a written certificate of divorce. Jesus said that was because of the hardness of your heart that Moses made that concession. It wasn't God's original plan. Moses was recognizing that the people had lost a heart for one another. What was he saying? There were two schools of thought at this time around this idea. That's why they're trying to trap Jesus. One school of thought says, well, the written certificate of divorce should be given to a wife who was unclean. In other words, if she, if she was found to have been sexually active before the marriage, you could divorce her. But there was a whole other school of thought at the time called the School of Hillel that thought in this terms, if your wife was simply unpleasing to you, you could write her a certificate of divorce and send her away. You come home from a long day of work and your wife makes pot roast and you taste it and you're like, mm, this pot roast doesn't taste like my mama's. In the words of Martin Lawrence, get to stepping. Only like three people understood that reference. You'd be surprised. Thursday night when I said that, the entire crowd knew what I was talking about. But you understand, like there's this idea that if, if, if the romance isn't there, then I can just walk away. If she's unpleasing, I'll walk away. If he's not that romantic like he used to be, I can just walk away from this. That is not God's intention and God's plan. But God does know that our hearts grow cold. Our hearts become hardened to one another. If you want to increase your romance, how do you do that? You increase your love. If you want to increase your love, how do you do that? Jesus gives us a great example, scripturally, when it comes to increasing our love for him, spiritually. It's in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, he's, say, he's talking to the church, and he says this, I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other like you did at first. Look how far you have fallen. 
turn back to me. And he doesn't say turn back to me and love me. He says you've lost your first love. But he doesn't say go back to your first love. What does he say? He says in order to stir up that first love, what does he say? He says do the works you did at first. So if romance is lacking in your marriage and you want it to increase, what do you do? You increase your love. Well, how do you increase your love? You do the things you used to do when you were first in love. Well, it might feel silly to do that now. Listen, the poem wasn't silly when, it, it, when you wrote it. The ridiculous, lovey-dovey, sappy note that you would read today and go, that was stupid, wasn't stupid when you wrote it. The holding hands all the time and not being able to keep your hands off each other looks stupid to everybody around you then but it wasn't stupid between the two of you. If you want to increase the romance in your life, do the things you know to do. What does that mean in a marriage relationship? Ladies, if you want to increase romance, let me just give you a tip. Get a new pair of pajamas. By the way, gentlemen, there should be an unlimited budget in your home for pajamas. Husbands, if you want to increase the romance in your home, go home today and wash every floor. Maybe it's after Valentine's Day, but go get some chocolates. Buy a a silly teddy bear. Put a note on it. When you walk out today, hold her hand and don't let it go. Right? There are all these things that we can do to stir up love. If we want to stir up romance in our hearts and our lives, we should do the things we did at first. Listen, maybe you're like, well, when I got married, my husband just pulled up and he's like, hey, baby, get in. And I got in and that was it. Well, like, okay, maybe you need to study some other things to do at first, right? If you need some help with that, we can talk. But do you understand what I'm saying? God has called us to live in romantic, and maybe not romance is the wrong word, maybe passionate lives. God has called us to live passionate lives. It's not everything, it's not all things, but God has called us to be passionate in these relationships. But if we're going to do this, how do we do it? We turn to our first love. Would you stand with me? Let's just turn our hearts to the Lord for a minute. Let's turn our hearts to the Lord for a minute. Let's just sing the chorus of this song. Because if we're going to renew our love with one another, we've got to renew our love with Him. Let's just sing, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, we love you. God, we're not pursuing this love for you so we'll just get something good, but we're pursuing this love for you because you loved us first. And you're so good to us. We thank you that your love allows us to love one another in the same way that you loved us. 
And God, your love for us was passionate and covenant-making and covenant-keeping. And God, we desire in this house to be people that demonstrate that covenant, that love, and that passion in our marriage relationships, whether we're in them or going into them or whether we've had some that are broken. God, we want to honor marriage, not as a God, and not replace you with it, but in a way that brings honor to your name. And so we give ourselves this morning to loving you, to demonstrating our love for you and allowing you to stir up that love in our hearts that you have for us. God, we repent for every time that we've treated marriage flippantly. For every time we brought somebody else or another idea into this marriage covenant. God, we repent for entertaining ideas that are not yours. So we ask you that as you transform our thinking, you'd also transform our hearts. That we would be a people that say what you say about life and about marriage and about romance. That your kingdom would be built in us. That your kingdom would be built through us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Krantz coming to close us. Just remain standing, please. Thank you, Pastor Josh. Hmm. Love how God can turn the heat up in our hearts and maybe not the room. <laughs> if you're here for the first time, there, there's uh, Guest Central in the back. We'd love for you to stop in, say hello, uh, let us get to know you. You need to know us a little bit. There's ushers in the back that are also going to receive there. They're to receive our tithes and offering. There's all kinds of ways to give. It's up, up there. You can old-fashioned way, just put something in there. If you're here for the first time, there is no obligation in that. Uh, if you have a home church somewhere, make sure it gets to your home church. Uh, but if God is moving and speaking to your hearts, uh, honor him with that. Uh, small groups have started up. You can go on the website. I think there's still room to plug in on some of them. Uh, if you haven't and you're not going to do it this semester, I encourage you to do it next semester. There is life that happens in this small group, uh, being together. Um, I love getting together like this, but in a small group, it's even deeper and richer. Uh, so please do that. Um, if you needed a snapshot of what the marriage conference is going to look like, you just watched, you just heard <laughs> a snippet of what, that's, what the marriage conference is going to be. Please uh, make every effort, uh, if you're married, uh, to make it to it. Uh, set the time aside and go to it. The altars are open. When I get done praying, the doors are going to open. But God's got your hearts open now. Don't close your heart to what God is speaking to your heart now. If you need prayer, please come up and pray with Let us, let us partner with you with prayer. Uh, so, Lord, we thank you. <laughs> your love is relentless. <laughs> and you loved us first. And, Lord, you gave us a love letter back on how to love you and how to love others. So, Lord, we, we lift that up and just thank you so much. Lord, I lift up the givers here today. Lord, that you would pour blessings back on the givers and also the receivers of it. Uh, Lord, that your kingdom would be so far advanced, farther than anything we could ever think or imagine. Uh, and the blessings would go deep and rich, uh, not only in our neighborhood, uh, but to the ends of the earth.
So Lord, as we, as we leave today, when you're done with us, <laughs> we walk out with a whole new level of love, of how much you love us, and how we can love others. Lord, we thank you for today, uh, and we look forward to what you have for us uh, every day for it. And I say it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Be blessed, be blessed, be blessed. Have a great day.